Well, Merry Christmas to you. And I know it's a busy time. I know you only got 48 hours, or 24 really, in my house. But if we could just lay aside all of that for a little bit, I want, I want to ask a question today and try to deal with it that's sort of rolling around in all of our adult minds. I mean, even if it's not like out there, I'm going to pull it out from kind of behind the screen a, a little bit. Uh, and the question is this, what difference does it make really now in our time, in our space and time in this world right now, what difference does it make if the nativity, the birth of Jesus actually happened the way that we have been told in the Bible? And you say, well, <laughs> I'm a Christian, Dwayne. <laughs> I'm here in church on Sunday, just before Christmas, aren't I? Come on. But think about how it crosses your mind and how it comes up because there's so many voices in our adult world, aren't there, that kind of tend to move it over into the magical, move it over into the perfect, move it over into the, you know, the fable side of things. And I'm not saying that you're doing that. I'm just saying that that's kind of the pressure, the inertia of being an adult in a skeptical world. And the question is, is are there some things we lose along the way? about what God wants to do in our lives when we kind of live with that inertia constantly. I mean, because when we're kids, right, we kind of believe the magical stuff when we're wrapped up in it. I mean, when I saw these kids up here, and uh, I, saw, I heard the video just before, uh, and, uh, you know, the reading of uh, Luke 2, which happens to be the text we're going to go through today, it also happens to be the text of my first childhood Christmas piece. It's the first Christmas I remember when I had to get up in front of the church, and memorize Luke 2, 1 to 20 as a five-year-old. And my mom made me a little suit out of Pendleton wool, and it was really cool. It was plaid. It looked like coat of many colors, man. It was just great. Super itchy. But I was able to get through it, and I thought, man, that's something. And it, but it caused me to think, you know, I think this actually happened. And as you get into adults, though, as I said, you, you just kind of, the pressure is to move it into fable, not maybe may, not actually believe it in your head. You still believe it, you know, actually happens so forth. But in your heart, it just kind of moves over into fable, into myth, into uh, folklore, you know, that kind of thing uh, of what actually. Because really, we just need to get the point. It doesn't really matter if it actually happened. Get the the moral of the story. But what is the moral of the story? I mean, because because things things like this don't help. Look at this picture. This is hipster nativity scene. I'm pretty sure somebody in Portland made this. Uh, this. This you can get for $60 right now, by the way. It's on sale, usually 80 bucks. But you got the wise men over there. They're carrying Amazon packages on their Segways, and they all got their cool hats. Mary's flashing the peace sign with a Starbucks cup in her hand. Joseph's taking a selfie. You've got the, uh, you know, the solar panel on the top of the barn. 100% organic beef back there in the background, and... The shepherd dude is looking at his iPad, checking out if he's lost any of his sheep. So, I mean, it, it, yeah, you know, he, why do that, that happen? Because the, the, the way we kind of do Christmas in America, especially today, is it's sort of once upon a time, right? So this is just a logical extension of once upon a time. Mary and Joseph went to Bethlehem. Once upon a time, Jesus died on a cross. Once upon a time, he rose from the dead. Once upon a time, Cinderella. Once upon a time, the princess and the pea. Once upon a time, once upon a time, right? But the point is, is that's not exactly what Christmas is supposed to be about, is it? I mean, that's not what this story is supposed to be about. And, and even when we sort of clean it up and dress it up 
And the traditional way, it, it doesn't help that much. Like, check this out. Look at this. This is, you know, a beautiful picture, don't you think? I really like this picture. But look, they've already installed a ceiling lighting right there. It's just coming down on them. Um, baby Jesus is blonde. We know that's true, right? Because all Middle Eastern children are born blonde. And, and, and look at Mary, ladies who've had a baby. And you just had it in a barn? Would you look like that? <laughs> I'm, I'm, not, I'm just asking. I'm not saying. And then look at the animals, how well behaved they are. Nobody's lifting their tail, you know, nobody's trying to get a piece, a chunk out of Jesus, even though he's laying in their feeding trough. You know, we just kind of paste it up and make it all sort of magical and all sort of wondrous, and, which is, is great. And I'm not saying, please understand me, I'm not saying that myth or fantasy or any of that is bad. I mean, history is full of a long line of Christian believers who've sort of done the Trojan horse thing and snuck biblical truth past the watchful dragons of skeptical adults in the, na in the name of myth and story, right? That happens. That's happened. But what you need to understand is that's not how the information originally came to us. The way the information came to us is by thorough, investigative reporting by an intellectual, scholarly, thoughtful, you know, uh, 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 CSI kind of guy named Luke. In fact, I want to show you something because the uh, reality is that Luke tells us exactly what his purpose was in writing this story. In Luke chapter 1, the very first verses, my guess is that, you know, many of your friends don't even know these verses are in the Bible. Because he, he, he grounds his story flat out into space and time, into a place and time, just like we are here in this room in space and time. That it actually happen. Look how he starts off his whole story in, in verse 1. He says, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Okay, what he's saying here is many, many, many people have been trying to get this down on paper. People have been trying to get these stories that are floating around in one place. And maybe not in a chronological account, but in a, in a, in a by and large chronological account and in a, in a, in a way that kind of brings some order and so we can know what the stories are real and what's really real and what really happened and what didn't happen. And here's the thing. This is not 20 years later, 30 years later, 40 years later, you know, Luke's writing it about 50 years later, but he's saying, I'm getting this information from eyewitnesses who were there and I've talked to them and I've examined it. And with this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. So that you may know the certainty. Isn't that interesting? I love that, that you may know. Well, who is this that's talking to us? It's Luke, Dr. Luke. And he's writing this down. And we call it a book. It's not really a book. It's an ancient document. In those days, they called it Luke. Actually, it was connected with this other book called Acts at the time. And they didn't have a whole lot of creative, you know, book titles in those days. So they called it Luke by Luke, right? And Luke was a doctor. He, he was a, um, a physician who had, become, who had become a Christian 
He'd also done his own share of investigative work of, you know, um, looking not, not so much from a, a crime and, and uh, uh, authority angle, but more from the angle of, you know, like a historian and, and investigating and trying to figure out what, what actually happened. And, and here's the interesting thing. Luke was not looking for a Messiah in the early, when Jesus was on earth. He wasn't, a, he wasn't even Jewish. He was from like Antioch up north in Syria area. Lebanon. The, the, the weird thing is, is that um, he was not looking for a Messiah like the Jews were looking for a Messiah. He also was definitely not looking for a virgin-born Messiah. And yet half a chapter later, he tells us the story of how the angel shows up to Mary and tells her she's going to have a child. And Mary says, well, how can that be? Because I'm, I'm a virgin. I mean, he wasn't looking for that. Nobody, here, here's the in, interesting little factoid maybe nobody told you. Nobody in the Jewish community was looking for it either. <laughs> it wasn't like he dug around in the Old Testament and said, ah, there's a prophecy of, uh, um, you know, a virgin is going to be born and the Messiah is going to be born. Uh, no, it, it's implied there. You can find it in, in 2020 hindsight. But nobody expected that. Luke didn't expect it. He wasn't even looking for a Messiah until he became a Christian, possibly through the ministry of Paul. He, he, and so as he writes this, he's just simply putting down on paper what you would normally put down. Because you see, in, in Luke's day, what you would do uh, if you were writing a history of something, you would find out what the person who was paying you to write it really wanted, and then you'd puff that person, like Caesar. And Luke says, I'm not doing that. He puts in stuff that is going to be hard to believe, but virgin birth, I'm telling you, that's, that's what I discovered. That's what, what, what I've been told, that, this, that it was born of a virgin. And there were many, many Messiah wannabes around the, uh, Palestine at the time. And not one of them came forward and said, you know, I'm not sure my father is really my father. Because if they did, they would not be the Messiah because the Messiah was supposed to come from the line of David. I remember the first time... As an adult, I really confronted this. Like, do you believe that this is true? And it was when I had just become a pastor, actually. It was in the old days when, and you know, I'm sure there's churches that still do this, but we had these things called cantatas where you'd have this choir, and the choir would sing the story of Jesus, and there might be a narrator, and you know, somebody would compose this uh, beautiful running music and so forth. And some churches that were rich and wealthy put orchestras with them. We didn't. We just had a piano. But on that day, in those days, you know, I had a decent voice in those days, and, and Sharon has always had a great voice, and, and so we volunteered to be in this choir, and she got the part of Mary, and I got the part of Gabriel. So I'm singing to her, you will be with child, and she said, how can this be? And we'd been married about three years, <laughs> and I could not stop laughing. <laughs> and then she started laughing, but I was the first to laugh, I, I have to say that. But we kept busting it up so much, the choir director finally said, okay, and remember, I'm a pastor at this point. Okay, I'll, we'll give that part to somebody else. So, did. I'm, I'm, I can't remember. She might have gotten to still be married. But I was out on the Gabriel thing. But here's the kicker. The reason it was so hard not to laugh is we hadn't even told her parents yet, who lived down the road, she was pregnant with our first child. And we knew how it happened. My point is, is that Luke knows how this happens. He's not just saying, oh, that's such a sweet story. I'm going to put it in there. He wouldn't have put it in there 
if he hadn't discovered and he hadn't been forced by the reality that this actually happened. And, and then look at that word certainly, in, um, with certainty, in, in verse 4. Let me show you a little different translation of this, okay? Here's Luke is telling us flat out his purpose of why he's writing. I'm going to show you from the New American Standard Bible, which is what I was raised on. Here we go. Having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, I write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, uh, so that you may know the exact truth about the things that you have been taught. The exact truth. You see, Luke you know, just for a little information here, is writing not in the trade language, not in Koine Greek. He's writing in what is nearly such high Greek, it's almost classical Greek. It's the stuff that people, Socrates, Plato, those guys would talk in. Okay? So he knows the stuff. I, I know this because when I learned Greek in Wheaton College, our professor the first week said, okay, everybody's going to start reading Luke. And we said, well, why are we starting with Luke? He said, because it's the hardest book. Because this is, this is highfalutin Greek language. And he noodles around in his language, and he finds a word that no one else uses in the New Testament, and no one else, uh, very few people use out there in, in the, the populace either, and he sticks it in here for certainty. And the reason he uses it is sort of like our words, you know, there's a root word, and then there's a word that's kind of built on that, like fun and funny, that kind of stuff. Luke finds a word that means basically true. And says, I want you to know what actually, exactly happened. I want you to know what's true. So that's a completely different change. That's a completely sideways way of looking at it and going for it uh, in, in terms of the way people would write these kinds of documents or these kinds of books in Luke's way. Now, what's the big deal about that? The big deal about that is when you turn the page to chapter 2, as we've already heard read to us twice today, as you turn the page, you see something extraordinary. Luke does something amazing for his time. He grounds it in specific information about what actually happened that you can go back and check the history books. You can go back and people that were reading this could go back and ask people, did this happen, did this happen? And you can get a specific time and a place and you can double check him. He almost double dog dares you to check out if this really happened. Let's read it together and comment along the way and see what you think. Verse 1 of chapter 2. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. Okay, here's the thing. Caesar Augustus, in those days, people knew exactly the days of Caesar Augustus. He ruled for almost 41 years. He was about 1,500 miles away from Bethlehem in Rome. And in Rome, <clears throat> you know, he was considered, uh, you know, the greatest um, Caesar of all. There'd only been two of them, and he's the one that claimed that's title emperor or Caesar. And, and what's interesting is his father uh, was Julius Caesar, and they called him Divine Julius. So as a result of that, people started calling uh, his, uh, you know, his adoptive father called him, they called him Divine Julius, they called Augustus, the son of God. And then the minute Luke is going to use the word Savior in the mouths of the angels, that's the only time that word shows up in the New Testament, by the way. But 
he used, puts this word in specifically. Why? Because people were starting to talk about Augustus Caesar as if he were savior of the world. Especially if you were in his court or one of the senators that wanted to get something for your, your house. You know, you'd say, oh, you're a great savior of the world. Because he was the one that had created the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, the military peace. People thought, oh, you're, you're just the greatest. It's amazing. It's wonderful. But here's the kind of the, the funny thing about Luke here. He, he, he's almost doing a little joke here on Caesar. Because he's, okay, son of God, 1,500 miles away, the real son of God. You know, Savior, 1,500 miles away, angels are announcing a Savior. And, and, and uh, yet, when you think about it, it starts to make sense. Historically, most of us have heard of Augustus Caesar. Maybe if we went to high school and we talked about it, and maybe we're old enough to have had a Western civilization class because they don't teach them anymore. I mean, you, 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 you kind of had heard of that. But between the time when Jesus was born, between the time of Caesar Augustus and the time of uh, Shakespeare, hardly anybody knew about Caesar Augustus, except for right here as a footnote in the story of Jesus being born. And the reason he puts it there is so people can find out the time. And what Luke is trying to say is, look, I'm trying to describe for you the beginning of the confrontation between the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of this world. I'm describing for you a clash because he's starting to describe why what happened in the next two and three hundred years happened. He didn't live that long, but he could see it coming from there. A hundred years later, Caesar Augustus's uh, successors tried to obliterate Jesus' followers. And 300 years later, the actual emperor of Rome became a Christian, a Jesus follower himself. And so what he's saying here is that's how this whole thing started, this clash started, and it actually happened this way. In fact, he doubles down and gives even more historical detail. Look at verse 2. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. The kids said that way better than me. Governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. So what he's giving us here is extra-biblical information. We have documentation and extra-biblical information that tells us that Quirinius, there was a guy named Quirinius that was actually uh, governor in Syria, and he did two censuses. The thing is, it's hard to kind of pin down where this is for us because those censuses took 14 years to do. Couldn't do it on the internet. Didn't have everybody enough people to go door-to-door. And so they took these Census is by making everybody go to their town that their family was from, their lineage was from, which starts to beg the question, too. It's a little interesting. Was this whole idea of the census God's idea? Or was it Caesar's idea? Because the prophecies had been around for 700 years that a Messiah would be born, and the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Isn't that interesting? So maybe in the midst of all the struggle and all the difficulty, maybe uh, God had this idea that this is how it should be to get that all put together that he had had in his mind and heart for thousands and thousands of years before. And so as we get into the meat of this, I'm going to ask you to listen to it as if you're hearing it for the first time. Okay, I know it's hard because you've heard this maybe a million times, if you, uh, you know, hundreds of times if you're a Christian. Maybe you watched the uh, Charlie Brown Christmas special a thousand times before they took this part out. 
We put it back in, by the way. Did you notice that that was Linus on the, on the screen when the kids were saying, yeah, yeah, we got it back in there. So here's the thing. Think about, listen to this and, and, and consider this for the first time as if this is, you're hearing it that way. So Joseph, verse 4, also went up to the town of Nazareth in Galilee into Judea to Bethlehem to the town of David because he belonged to the house on the line of David. That's where his ancestors were from. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Now, we're going to talk about kind of how that all, at least somebody's coming tonight to talk about how all that worked out tonight and tomorrow night at Christmas Eve service. But let me just ask you this question. How do you think that... uh, Conversation went. Joseph and Mary. Oh, uh, look, hon, uh, I got good news and bad news. The good news is we get to get out of town for a while because you're eight months pregnant and it's really showing. The bad news is it's over 100 miles and all I have is this donkey. Right? I mean, I, 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 I'm sure they were more faithful than maybe we would be, but still, how, how does that all work out? How does that all go? You see, Joseph's ancestors being in Bethlehem, he didn't have a choice. Thank you, Augustus Caesar, very much. Thank you so much for sending us on this way. And when you think about that part of the story from going from Nazareth to Bethlehem, ask yourself, if this is fairy tale, if this is myth, if this is, you know, just sort of, you know, a good story to teach a good truth, what's the truth? What's the moral of this story, right? It's not even good myth, it's, it's, I mean, think of the stories that we have morals to. You, we, the, the moral of the story of John, uh, George Washington chopping down the cherry tree. I cannot tell a lie. By the way, that didn't happen. I, I, hope, I don't want to ruin anybody's Christmas, but that didn't happen. Okay? And, and, and uh, what's the truth of that? The moral of that is don't lie. Frodo going up to the mountain uh, in Mordor and throwing the ring in and destroying the ring after all he's been through. That did happen. <laughs> I... Uh, some of <laughs> I saw it in a movie. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> but, but, but what's the point of that? Have courage again in the face of evil. Benjamin Franklin flying his kite and for some unknown reason puts a wire on it as a string and the, the lightning strikes it, the, the, the electricity comes down into a jar or bottle or can or whatever he's got and it covers electricity. That didn't happen either, by the way. Sorry. What's the point of that, though? Don't stick a paper clip in an electrical plug. Never do that. But what's the point of this? There have been times when we've been on road trips as a family where I've just, I think I've known the moral that I could make up here. You should call ahead and get reservations because it's going to be hard to find. That, I mean, no, can, can that possibly be? You, you, but you begin to see why this has to be something else other than a magical story, right? Again, not against magical stories, but that's just not the purpose, and that's not the point that Luke is doing. And, and, and look, look at verse 8. And there were shepherds living out in their fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. Now, this makes total sense because Bethlehem was a shepherd town. It was where the temple sh- uh, animals for sacrifices were kept and all that kind of stuff. So people in Luke's time you know, would be able to check that out. So he's, again, he's grounding it in history. In verse 9, and an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. Shone means exploded. It doesn't mean like, oh, it's just a beautiful scene. It means they can't open their eyes. 
It's just a blast in their eyes. Shone around them, and they were terrified. Terrified doesn't mean, man, that kind of freaks me out. It means they were on the ground, face on the ground, scared to death. The words that Luke puts in here actually make that clear. It's, it's fear, fear, mega. They feared a great fear. Phobon, phobon, mega. Phobos, phobon, mega. So it's like, you know, phobia, phobia, big phobia. Because they saw this angel, they, they thought they were seeing God himself. And everybody knows you can't see God and live, at least they knew that from the Old Testament. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all people. Hope if you got your Bible and you've got this story open and you got or you go home and get it that it's that all is circled. I'll tell you in a minute why. Today in the town of David, our a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. You see that that all is significant because that means you and me. That means everybody on the planet, every all you've ever run into. It means the people who think that you know. Life never seems to go easy for me. Life never, you know, it, it just doesn't go right. Surely, even if Mary didn't have that thought on the trip from Nazareth to Bethlehem, being a man, I'm pretty sure Joseph did. Because, I mean, there's a tendency for us guys sometimes to just, ah, how come it's just got to be so hard all the time? And if you've ever thought that, if you've ever considered that, you know what? What God is saying here, what, 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 what the angels are saying here, is that God hears your prayers. He knows what you're experiencing, and he knows what you're feeling, and he actually puts somebody in his story that's right where you are. All also means people who feel like, you know, I'm never going to do anything great. I mean, think of young Mary. It's just a teenager living in this little backwater you know, one donkey town of Nazareth. And she's, you know, all of a sudden, you know, this angel comes and says, but you're going to be the mother of the Savior of the world. It's like, oh. I mean, I'm sure there were moments when she was traveling, when she was in Bethlehem. I mean, she considered and pondered all these things. We'll see that in a minute. But the reality is I'm sure there were moments like, oh, how can I ever earn God's favor? How can I ever amount to much and so forth and so on? And and, and, and the all says, that's not what it's about. There's something else going on here that the angels are going to tell us in a minute. It's, it's not about how you can earn it, how you can get it, how you can, you know, that somehow you've got to accomplish it. But you're significant just because God loves you and he says so. And there's somebody like that in the story. Or maybe you feel like an outsider. You know, you've got an agreement with your parents. We don't talk religion because you're just not into this thing. Go there for Christmas and Easter, but do not bring up, bring up your religion, right? You're kind of an outsider. You kind of do your own thing. You dress your own way. Your dress clothes are a hoodie and jeans, you know? That's what shepherds were like. In fact, they were kind of smelly people. They were considered unclean in their day. And God is saying here, if you feel like you're on the outside and you're not clean enough and you're not good enough, well, guess what? This is for you too because you are included in the all. You see, in an unmistakable way, this is expressing 
that the love of God is not based on something we are or we, it's all based on him. And that when he brings it into this world, the first place to understand that is that it's all about him. And, and, and uh, what's perfect about this, what's really, truly, let's use the word magical or wondrous, is that when God sends his son to the earth, he doesn't send us a second chance. He doesn't send us a list. Why? Because we don't need a list. We don't need a second chance. We need a Savior, as it says here. We don't need um, a second chance because we're not just mistakers. And by the way, if we're given a second chance, we're going to mistake again on the second chance or the third chance or the fourth chance. But also, the point is, is we're sinners. We're trapped by this sin thing. We're broken. It's busted. We're stuck in a way that we can't break out of. We need a Savior, someone who will come in, grab us by the collar, and pull us out of that and get us out of our sin and wash away our sin and forgive our sin and all those metaphors that are used to try and describe what God is doing at this specific moment in this space and time that actually happened. In fact, the angels go on to describe it in more detail. Look at that. This, they offer more evidence, actually, which you never do if you're trying to do a fable or a myth. Evidence isn't the issue. The fun story is the issue then. This will be a sign to you. You will find the baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest. Okay, let's stop right there. Who is this about? It's about God. Who is it about? Why is that important? Because he gets all the credit. I hate to break the news to you, but Christmas and Jesus coming to earth, it isn't about you. It's about him. It's not about me. It's about him. He's the one that gets all the credit for this. And once you start to kind of open up your heart and the possibility that there's something that doesn't revolve around you, all of a sudden you get sucked up into a place that you never thought was possible for you. And you get changed and transformed into the with the possibilities of what God can do with a soul completely committed and given over to him because it's all about him and he deserves all the glory but look what he's up to to make that glory uh, and, and to, to, to show that glory glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. You see, peace on earth on whom his favor rests, that whole favor rest thing. I'm not sure I, my heart fully gets this even now. hope that doesn't freak you out from a pastor. But I think most of us don't really think about that. I mean, imagine this scene to just kind of get to the point I'm making. Imagine an angel actually shows up this morning instead of me shows up and looks at all of us and goes, God's favor rests on you. What's the first thing you're going to do in here? You're going to start digging around in your past. You're going to start digging around in your life. And you're going to start digging around, digging around, digging around. And you're going to go, that can't possibly be true. Not about me. Her, maybe, she stuck with me all these years, but not me. Right? You're going to start questioning that. But you know the problem of that is? 
You know what that automatically looking at yourself instead of looking at glory to the God in the highest? You know what that is? That's your sin. That's my sin. The tendency to look in ourselves and decide whether who we are, that, look at our past, look at what we've done and decide who we are, that is the brokenness of sin. That's why we need this glory of God to get our eyes up in the right place. That's why worship is so important. Because it it, it's part of the transformation that takes place when we stop living in the world that we've created and living in the world that we think that we can get right and that we can do and we can't do any of it. We need a Savior who will lift us out of that continual cycle of, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but, I'm, 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 I'm. And I did, I did, I did, right? Because here's the thing. It says, peace on earth. So God gets the glory, we get the peace when his favor, or a better translation might be his pleasure, rests on us. And here's why I'm going into such detail, such, saying this over and over again. It's this, that as long as you and I focus on who we are and what we've done, and we, we kind of do that, you know, I deserve, I deserve, I deserve, I deserve thing in our heads, you will never, ever, not ever, 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 ever experience the peace of God in your life. Because that's, and that's what he came to bring us, to break that cycle, to get our eyes on to the wondrous God who deserves all the glory and let him change it. In fact, the angels go away and look what the shepherds do. They, they do what anybody would do if they thought they had just heard the most awesome news in all of the history of the world. Look at this. When the angels had left them, and gone into the into heaven, the shepherds got up and all went to the bathroom. No, they didn't do that. The shepherds said to one another, hey, let's go into Bethlehem to see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary, Joseph, and the baby who was lying in the manger. What would that be like to walk into that stable, probably an open-door cave kind of stable thing, and see everything exactly what the angel had told you. Whew. That would be amazing. You know what that means? That means you can't hide the truth forever. Luke writing this years later means that you can't hide the truth forever. I discovered that as a young, 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 young person. My mom had this porcelain nativity scene and these figurines. And I was really young at this point. Like, really young. I won't say how young because it was so long ago. But... But I love those things. I, I wanted to just hug those things and play with those things. I broke off one of the angel's head one time. So my mom had to glue it back on. And one year, baby Jesus went missing. And I loved baby Jesus. You know what? After searching and searching and about, you know, I think of it as a week, but it could have been just a couple of days, they found him in my room. And boy, was I in trouble. When you steal the baby Jesus, you are in trouble. But what I discovered even at that young age is you can't hide what you've done. We all know that. Ultimately, it comes out. And you can't hide the truth of what has actually happened. That's even better news. You can't hide the truth of what's actually happened. So these guys discover this. It's exactly what they were told they would find. 
And look what happens um, after that. When they had seen him and spread the word concerning what had been told to them about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. So there's a lot of whooping and hollering going on. Shepherds were known for whooping and hollering anyway. But look how Mary responds. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. I just got to think that that's how she lived her life. She just considered and you know, said, what does this mean to me? What is God doing? What's glorifying? And so then the shepherds run out into town. Instead of going to the taverns, there's what they do. The shepherds return glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen, which was just as they had been told. So you see, I think all this clarity and all this certainty and all this point of, you know, I want you to know this actually happened, this actually happened, and even though you can't see it, the kingdoms were clashing and so forth and so on and so on, that Luke's trying to do. It begs a question for us today, too. You notice that last line that said, it was just as they had been told. That's the second time we're told that. Just as they had been told. Well, here's my question for you. In 2018, in this space and time, what if it's actually true? Just as you've been told today. Not by me, but from the scriptures. You've been told this story three times today. Isn't that interesting? What if it's actually true? I'm getting the feeling that that's God's message for us, that he wants us to know, I actually did this, I actually was there, and now I'm actually here. You see, as Christians, that question, you know, Jesus followers, that question needs to be continually considered and, as Mary did, pondered and thought over throughout our lives. But it might kind of change a little bit in terms of how we ask it. Because here's the thing. What difference does it make if it's true? And, and maybe you're a Christian here today and you're going, Dwayne, I get the question, man. I'm a Christian. I'm here for crying out loud. You know? Why is this even a question? And the reason this is a question is because of that constant pressure to wonder. To wonder if I'm really a part of the you that the angels spoke of. Because what they obviously intended, hope you see now, is that you, 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 and every you you ever see, and me. It means for all of us, even the people who, you know, we're kind to, and then they're not kind back because they can never pay us back. Even the people who, um, you know, just drive us bonkers. Even those of us who drive people bonkers. The you counts for all of us that God was up to something at that time that he's still up to, uh, up to now in this time. And this is interesting because years and years and years and years later, Jesus' youngest disciple of the 12 uh, wrote a letter. It's called 1 John. And, and by the way, John had taken care of Jesus' mother, Mary, for most of his adult life. He saw to her needs. So he surely heard the events of that night over and over and over again. And when it came time that he was going to tell in just a couple of verses what happened there, what God was doing, here's how he describes it in 1 John 4, verses 8 and 9. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. 
This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. Oh, God was up to showing some love, and a, a, a kind of love that we can't even hardly define. We need about 50 words to try to even just begin to describe it. He was showing his love by sending his truly divine son into this world for you and you and you and you and you and you and me. You see, this changes the whole ecosystem of this planet. It changes the ecosystem of your life and my life. Think of, think of it this way. That love that, that, that Jesus brought with him, he created a whole new ecosystem of love giving out love. Okay, so he pours it into us, but he's meaning for it to be given out to others. So the, the, he creates this ecosystem, and the purpose for human beings, again, is sort of recalibrated to what it originally was intended to be. What was it intended to be when God created Adam and Eve? It was intended to be that human beings would, ju- would simply receive God's love. That they would be uh, vessels and you know, experiencers of God's love constantly, every day. And when Jesus came to earth, it recalibrated all that. And in that way then, the new world that we live in now, because he came on that night and actually came and those events actually happened... That world, our purpose now in this world is to give love out. What kind of love? Well, it's certainly the kind of love that Jesus says just before he dies, the night before he's betrayed. Remember this? He gives them a commandment, was it? To love one another as I have loved you. I've poured into you, now you pour into others. What does that look like? Jesus came and he loved people who could never, ever, ever pay us back, pay him back. And that includes all of us, doesn't it? So the greatest kind of love is the people that can never pay back. And I know that means people who you see that are hurting, who are homeless, that can't pay you back if they wanted to. It means the people that are far away and live far from you and you share with them and then you don't even live in the same city. That means them. But here's what this also means. Do you think you could ever pay back that person who shared the love of Christ for you, with you the, for the first time that caused you to become a Jesus follower? Could you ever pay them back? Nope. When you share this love, when you share your faith, when you share your hope, when you share the peace of God with other people, (laughs) they can't ever pay you back. And that's exactly the kind of love that Jesus brought when he came to this earth for you and me. You see, this starts to make sense out of a whole bunch of things. And if we don't think clearly about it, about Jesus coming in space and time, we just kind of get off in the magical land, which seems kind of fun for a while, but it doesn't have a payoff. It doesn't have the important huge payoff of the reality of Jesus coming to the earth that it has. Because the reality of it is, is when you're in worship and you go out of here and you go, you know what, I really sense Jesus was there today. He really is. You're not crazy. When you have a need and something's busted in you and you sense that God has sent his spirit of Jesus again, God sends Jesus to earth on a daily basis. I mean, he's here all the time in the sense of his spirit. But he sends it into lives and to hearts all the time. And when that happens to you, that's really real. That actually happened. And it means when you're in a service like this or you're hearing something else or you read the Bible and there's this tug in your heart. And it's like somebody almost says to you, you know what, this is for you today. You need to hear this. You need to think about this. You need to take this from here into here. You need to take it down deeper 
when that happens, that's really happening right now. Just like it was really happening. And it also means that this story tells us what we're worth. You know what you're worth? <laughs> you're worth Christmas. You're worth God of the universe sending his son to this planet, into your life, into your world. The good stuff, yeah. The magical stuff, yeah. But in the, even in the dark, tr troubling, difficult, struggling stuff, he sends his son into that with you. I'm going to call the band out here. And I'm going to pray here at the end, but uh, just before I do, I want to just say that you know, there's probably people here, uh, probably most of us here, have uh, already, uh, you know, asked him into our hearts, asked him into our lives, that he would touch down in our lives like he did uh, on that first night. Uh, maybe we did it as children, maybe we did it as teenagers, you know, adult life came along and kind of shoved it kind of to the outer recesses. We still believe it. I mean, good night. How many times do I have to say it? I'm in church, man. So, you, you, you know, you kind of got that thing going on. Or maybe, you know, you just, you, you do have a daily relationship with him of some kind, but it's just not as vibrant as it used to be. This message isn't just for people that don't believe about him. That's what I'm saying. It's not like, okay, check, got that one. I'm putting it in the back uh, burner. I'll talk to him about it when I get to heaven. It's not one of those. It's one of those regular, consistent questions. Jesus, I believe this is true, that you actually are who you say you are and that you came, and it's all about you. And, and those kinds of prayers. So I'm just going to invite you, if you're a Christian that's kind of in that kind of situation, you just pray as I'm praying. You know, Ignore what I'm saying, but you just pray that prayer. To him that whatever it is you need to say to him I'd like to have that fire back I'd like to I'd like to know you that way again and I know it's because you know something that I've kind of set on the back burner but I want it on the front burner Jesus show me how something like that but for the rest of us who've never done that who've never uh, experienced him have never thought this was even possible didn't realize that this was all there was to the story and you're thinking yeah I'd like to I'd like to have him in my life I'm going to pray a prayer that is essentially going to say, Jesus, I want to get in the car with you and go home today. <laughs> and and uh, you can kind of follow the words in my, your own mind and in your own heart and, uh, as I pray them, and, and that's all you need to do. But you pray them back to him. You're talking to him, not to me. So let's pray, okay? Everybody pray. Everybody, let's do the, uh, put our heads bowed and, and all of that. Heavenly Father, I just praise you and Thank you for the reality of what you actually did. And may that, may that send a chill down our spine again for those of us who know you. May that cause us to pay attention today, tomorrow, and next year, and for the rest of our lives. But Lord, for those of us who are here that have never asked you into our hearts and lives, I ask that you would hear our prayer now. And if this is your prayer and you're here today, you could pray something like this. Lord Jesus, thank you for coming for me. Thank you for wanting to pour your love into me and to set my life in a way that it could be. To take away my sin, to fix the brokenness that's in me that constantly drives me back into thinking about myself or worrying about how I, I look and how it's working out for me. 
lift me out of that. Lift me into a whole new life of experiencing your love and being able to do a better job at giving it to other people. And Lord Jesus, I'm simply asking you as best I know how and as much as I understand that you would be my friend for the rest of my life, a loving friend. Then all you need to say is, in your heart is, in Jesus' name I pray, amen. And I'm going to ask everybody to keep your head down. And if you prayed that prayer, though, I'm opening my eyes because I want to pray for you. If you prayed that prayer, would you pop your hand up? Yep. Yes. Yep. Anybody else? Yep. Heavenly Father, I thank you and I praise you for these eight or ten people that have said, this is the day. And Lord, would you make it the day like none other? Make this Christmas like none other. Would you do that in all of our hearts? That we would be drawn to you in a way, a whole new way, that really, truly can be called wonder. We love you, Lord Jesus. Thank you for being here and for what this day means to us and the next three days mean to us. Really. Amen.